Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's October of 20th, 1973. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. It's hard to imagine Australia without envisioning the shining sails of the Sydney Opera House, but when Queen Elizabeth II opened the now iconic building today in history in 1973, she pretty much had to acknowledge the many controversies that had surrounded both its commissioning and its construction, controversies that were so incendiary that the man who designed it, Jörn Utzon, had walked away from his magnum opus mid-project and didn't even rate a mention in the Queen's opening remarks. Yes, I understand that its construction has not been totally without problems, was the Queen's way of acknowledging 14 years of overspend and of disaster. Very queenly. <laughs> but the point was, behind her was the Sydney Opera House, which, though acoustically poor compared to other opera houses internationally inside, for reasons we'll get to later, on the outside, right from when it won the design competition to be the Sydney Opera House, was just a fabulous and never-before-seen kind of building. Elsewhere in her speech, she noted that controversy of the most extreme kind attended the building of the pyramids, yet they stand today 4,000 years later. <laughs> I mean, the speech was drafted by the New South Wales government, so they obviously wanted to be like, well, at least we didn't enlist thousands of people into slavery to build it. <laughs> Did the ancient Egyptians have a gallery space? I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Prior to the building of the Sydney Opera House, the Sydney Town Hall was the go-to venue for big cultural productions. But it was, as the name sounds, it wasn't seen as being large enough or modern enough for, you know, booming post-war Australia. Uh, you know, if you think back to our Eiffel Tower episode, these monuments that become iconic of the city because they are so distinct, they are often initially divisive. That wasn't so much the case with this. You know, it did have detractors. One politician said, shall I do the accent, Ariane? Yes, or please, please. please do it. He said, it looks like something that crawled up out of the harbour and died. You wouldn't sell pies out of it. Yeah, also pies are definitely available at the Sydney Opera House. I can vouch for that. <laughs> they found a way to make everyone happy in the end. Yeah. <laughs> the spot where it sits is uh, today known as Benelong Point. It was just this sort of rocky outcrop. And in fact, for a brief period after 1788, it was called Cattle Point because it was used to confine the first few uh, cattle and horses that had been brought over from Cape Town by the first governor, Arthur Phillip. Uh, and, and now it does the same for tourists. Right, yeah. Well, so yeah, so then it just became this sort of functional space where first it was a fort, then it became a tram shed. And then there just was this growing sense that Australia needed a home for its cultural output. And in 1947, the resident conductor of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, Eugene Guzens, said that this would be the perfect spot for the construction of a new opera house. And that was when they came up with the idea of launching a competition. It didn't actually launch until 
1956. So there was quite a lot of time before we got to this moment. Yeah, and the project ultimately went ahead without, you know, its original generator, Guzens. He was abruptly eliminated from the association with the Opera House project after his bag was searched at Sydney Airport in 1956 and found to be full to bursting with erotica and sex toys. He had to resign in disgrace and the Queen declined to mention his involvement in her speech. <laughs> So they had this competition internationally. Anyone could enter. Jan Ertzen was then only 38 years old. This was his first major international project. He'd never set foot in Australia when he designed it. And the guiding principle for him was that it didn't say Opera House above it. He was like, when you see a church, you say that's the church because you see the spire. You don't, it doesn't say church written on it. You know what it is. He wanted to create something that was very simple, very iconic, and the the big change, I suppose, in terms of how the building was conceived was that he was thinking about what he called the fifth facade. So not just the front and the back and the sides, but everywhere, from mm. every angle, like a sculpture, from an aerial view, from down on the ocean, from everywhere, this is going to look different and going to look distinctive. And the preliminary sketches he submitted that wowed the judges were very much about vibes. There wasn't a lot of calculations behind them. So when they did choose his design, they passed it on to a British engineering consultancy, Ove Arup and Partners, and they started crunching the numbers and realised that the logistics were going to be extremely tricky, particularly those unusual shell-shaped roofs. This would eventually become the most pressing engineering problem. The way they would solve it in the end is that they are all sections of a sphere. But because this took so long... And keeping in mind that the whole project was being funded by public money, not taxes, but a lottery, you know, people did have an eye on the budget and the, solving the problem of the roof took so long that Ertzen was struggling to keep everyone convinced that once that main issue was solved, he would be able to progress and do the interior rapidly. Yeah, his equally elaborate and insane interior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's this fascinating detail that they finally cracked the problem of the roofs when Utzen was looking at the peel of an orange and what the problem was, was that each of the shells could potentially have had a totally different shape and consequently would have required an enormous amount of extra work on top of the already vast work that was going into delivering this thing. But what uh, Utzen realized looking at this piece of orange peel was that if you had everything be based on the one sphere, then all of the different shapes would be uniform and you could eventually speed up the process and streamline it and make it cheaper. And it's such a simple idea this isn't it that they're all the same radius because they're all components of the same sphere like, mm. I've never thought about that but now I know it I can think yeah there is something harmonious even though each of the sails is different which comes from that very simple breakthrough concept. And, you know, even so, construction was expected to take just four years and eventually took 14 and had 10,000 workers to complete the whole business. Yeah, but things like being inspired by an orange are part of the reason that Utzon didn't exactly win the confidence <laughs> of everyone in government at the time, particularly in 1965. The new premier was Robert Askin and he, his new Minister of Public Works was Davis Hughes. Both of them had been vocal opponents of the Opera House project. And it's easy to look back and sort of make fun of detractors of what would obviously turn out to be this incredibly beautiful building. But at the time, Hughes was representing a growing number of people who were thinking, this is taking too long and it's costing too much money and this whimsical architect doesn't know, you know how he's going to actually finish it. A lot of people were starting to say, well, if we can raise this much money in a state lottery, why don't we put it into education or healthcare? And, you know, that is actually a good point. The final straw, well, it was a couple of things. 
One was that the government withheld a funding check, which meant that Utzon was unable to pay his employees. And also, he wanted to create these prototypes for plywood beams that he planned to use to support the ceiling. And also, they would have improved the acoustics, but they didn't want to pay to have these expensive prototypes designed. So in February 1966, with only the shelves of the roof completed, he resigned. And unsurprisingly, by the way, getting rid of the architect who was doing all the work only slowed things down even more. <laughs> no. Not least because architects weren't exactly lining up to build like a, a lesser version of a potential masterpiece. Eventually, they did get a young Australian architect called Peter Hall who took up this quite daunting project. But even so, the problem for Hall was that he just didn't have the same budget. And so this is kind of what leads us to the the, the building's poor acoustics, which do really date back to this uh, Premier Askin, who uh, not only had completely changed the trajectory of the construction in the first place, but he also decided that it was a good idea to make the smaller sale, which was meant to be a theatre. He wanted that to house the opera and the big sale should be the concert hall. Basically, they had to completely reimagine the, the sh- what those shapes were used for. And today's concert hall has a thousand seats too many, people say, and consequently the acoustics are terrible. And the opera theatre itself is comparatively pokey. And not only was he not able to get on with what Ertzen had left behind, he didn't even know what it was that Ertzen had intended for every part of the building because Ertzen had given his assistant the drawings to place in storage, just as a kind of final up yours. So there were no working drawings. So Hall actually didn't know what was in Ertzen's head. And when you consider that, it's kind of amazing it's functional at all. Yeah, where am I going to put the pie shop? I just can't work (laughs) it out from what I've got. (laughs) And so another week of retrospecting ends. But next week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.